Let's try that again. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, church family. It's good to see everyone here today. Thank you for worshiping here today. If you're a guest, we thank you for choosing to come and be a part. And church family, it's always good to, to see you. And it's good to fellowship and, and hear what God is doing in the body of Christ. And so uh, want to, uh, I want to say thank you to moms today. I'll go in a little bit more into that in a second. So if you would, just if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, let's begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to go back to the text that Alan preached from last week, and thank you, Alan, for doing that. Just I want to read through verse 13 to 22 just to give us some context and uh, understand the big picture of what God is doing through his word. So if you are able, please follow along with me, beginning in verse 13, where Peter, uh, again, just reminding you, he's asking this question as, as the church, he's calling them to submit to Gentile authority, but not their belief and behavior. And so as they follow through with that, there's the chance for suffering and persecution. So then verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? Blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah." during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, and after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today. And I thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. And Lord, Christ is our image that we're to take on. He is the one, you are the one, Lord, that we are to be conformed toward, to. We are to become like you, and it is so hard to do in this world. Uh, Lord, our flesh uh, wants nothing to do with that. But through your spirit, through your grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of God, we are able to be conformed to that image. And Lord, I pray that as we're walking through this text today, I pray that, Lord, you're free to teach us, guide us, direct us, and transform our lives, that we might live according to your word in obedience and be image bearers. Thank you, God, for each person who's here. And Lord, there are things that are going on in the lives of people as they've walked into this place, we've come together to praise you and worship you. And I just acknowledge that we all bring stuff with us that we really need to lay down at the foot of your cross. 
I pray that during this time, Lord, that we would truly, as Jason led us, surrender our all to you and understand the magnitude of our sinfulness and the power and effectiveness of your grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So I was walking through this and, and knowing that today is Mother's Day, uh, I've entitled this sermon, Bringing Us to God. That was the goal of Christ to bring a people to God. There was no way that we could make it to God on our own. Jesus had to make the way possible. As I was looking at Mother's Day and being thankful for mothers, and yes, moms, we so appreciate your, your consistent, diligent work of bringing your family to God. And many of you moms have, have been so consistent and faithful to honor God's word regardless of the response that a husband or your children uh, may bring back to you. And so I, I was thinking of my own mom, in which I want to say hi over the internet too, and also those moms that are at home who aren't able to be here because they are doing motherly duties. There, there are some moms who would love to be here, but they have to care for their loved ones, and so they are at home, and we need to remember them in prayer. But I remember my mom when I was a young young boy, uh, my my biological father left when I was one, so it was just my mom and me for the uh, first several years of my life. And and then I remember when my dad came on the scene, and uh, they were dating and and spending time together. And he asked my mom to marry him, and um, it's my stepdad, but I, it's only dad that I've known. And I remember I was in my bedroom one night, and they were in the living room at a small house, and and uh, I started crying. And she came in, and what and what, what is wrong? And I said, you know, every little boy's concern when it's just been the two, mom and the son, uh, well, you got a new man in your life. And uh, what's going to happen to me? You know, and she was very diligent. She was very good at just reminding me consistently of her love for me. But not only that, as, we, as I grew older, my, my dad uh, was diagnosed just after that first year of marriage. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, given six months to live. So for 28 years, he struggled with a terminal cancer. And God was just gracious. But in that life of inconsistencies, my mother was consistent and bringing me before God, consistent with bringing the Word of God before me and my sister, uh, consistent in teaching us how to pray and knowing the Word. And so, in a sense, uh, not only my mother, but also my grandmother as well, Granny Hensley. So I had two, two moms, two mother figures in my life that consistently brought me before the Lord through prayer and the Word. And so, moms, I want to say to you as we're walking through this text, okay, you're going to see some things as Peter is directing this to the church, okay? He's going to be talking about suffering again. He's talking about the pattern of Christ. And if you will understand the depth of this pattern of Christ and what you have been called to, you will see that you have the opportunity, how you parent, how you mother, to bring your family before God, a holy God, through the word and prayer. I must remind us, as I've said before, leadership costs. Leadership costs. Either the leader pays the price in preparation or the follower pays the price of an unprepared leader. Men, I will not skirt this issue. It is not the mother's role to rear the children. Biblically, Deuteronomy, we see it through, throughout the, the Bible. It is the role of the father to rear the children, to take dominion, 
to, to lead out, said in Genesis. But he knew that the man could not do it alone, and so he has a helpmate that is given to him. And that wife and that mother, she shows up on the scene to help and undergird the leadership of the father, because there are many times when the father is away from the family, protecting and providing And in those gaps of time, when the father's not there to speak into the children, to speak the word, to teach them the word, to teach them how to pray, to bring them as a leader of the home before God, that mother so many times is there to just fill in the gaps, okay? To be that helpmate with the father. And so we know that in some cases where uh, there's not a father at all on the scene, those moms are filling the role as best she can. And I'm so thankful for those mothers that do that, but the 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 statement bringing us to God. This is what Christ did for us. And this is the pattern as he lived his life. This is the pattern that he's called us to. And mothers, as you're walking through this today, I pray that you're encouraged as we see the example of Noah and we look at the text. So let's jump in. I just need to briefly, I don't want to be distracted with verse 13 through 17. I love that text and Alan preached from that last week. Thank you, Alan. But just for the sake of context, I want to just revisit just a couple of things leading into the following verses. So the, the verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You've got to understand the context here of what, what Christ is doing. Through our suffering, and this, this, this issue of 1 Peter, uh, we're called to submit to Gentile authority, but not belief and behavior. As we submit to that authority, but not the belief and behavior, Peter said over and over again, there's the opportunity for the church to suffer, to be persecuted. But we addressed in chapter one and chapter two, and they're following, Peter affirmed to the church, our salvation is secure in Christ. In fact, this living hope that we have in Christ Jesus has been placed in heaven, guarded through faith in Jesus Christ. It is guarded by the power of God, Peter says in chapter one, and this is something that is awaiting us this great salvation that we have appropriated through faith in Christ, we're still dealing with the effects of sin. We're still living in a sinful world. And so we haven't been saved from the presence of sin, but one day we we shall. At the revealing of Jesus Christ, he says, in that moment, we're going to receive a glorified body and uh, that bold flesh is going to be resurrected and it shall be like Jesus. But in the meantime, what is at work? The spirit. The spirit of Christ is at work in us, in our spirit, leading a people, fashioning a people, shaping a people. And so he's got all of that nailed down. He's got all of that nailed down for the believer. And so in the meantime, he says, in this suffering, in this current situation of life, who do you really have to be concerned about? Ultimately, who is there to harm you if if God's got all of this nailed down for us? And so when you move into verse 12, which uh, 12 and 13 are tied, look at what 12 says. 12 says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears. Now, so you got the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of God and the ear of the Lord, uh, his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what? Who do evil. So as you move into verse 13 and Peter asks that question, you've got to understand that that faithful follower of Jesus Christ who's going through the persecution is under the gaze of God. I want you to catch that as you move through this text. You're under the gaze of God. He is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to those who do evil, but to his followers who are submitting to the word of God and are being transformed by the power of God's word. He's saying, hey, you got my eyes 
and you got my ears, and I'm engaged. I'm locked. God, the Father, is locked in. Our Lord is locked in to what we're walking through. And so as we move into this text, verse 13 and following, there's really nothing to fear when we prove zealous for what is good, and that zealous is this one who is deeply committed to something or to someone, uh, earnestly committed to a side or a cause. Originally, uh, in, in language, that the definition of that word zealous meant to be possessed by a God, all the way up into the 17th century, to be possessed by a God. It is where we get our word enthusiastic or enthusiasm, God in. And so when you see us, uh, when we talk about being enthusiastic, or boy, you're really enthusiastic about the Lord, God within. It is God's spirit within the born-again believer who was doing an incredible work. I think often of the zeal of Phinehas, who for the Lord, he stood for the Lord, and, and he lived out that zeal. So as you are proving zealous for the things of God in verse 13 and 14, as, as Alan reminded us last week, we are blessed. You might say, well, we're suffering for the sake of righteousness. How are we blessed? Just in case you, you weren't here. Uh, one way in which we are blessed uh, in this suffering, first of all, I'm just going to go back through a couple of verses in First Peter chapter 1. We're blessed by being obedient to the Word of God. We're being conformed to the Word. We're being transformed by the Word of God. So that's one blessing. Another blessing, suffering for doing good finds favor with God. Chapter 2, verse 19. So in this suffering, you find favor with God as you're being obedient to the Word. Third thing, being like Christ. As you are giving evidence, as you're living out this pattern of Christ, you are becoming like Him and being like Christ. Fourth thing, the Spirit of glory. And we'll see this in chapter 4, verse 14, when we get there later. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you when you're in the midst of persecution and suffering. That's a powerful statement. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Wow. We get a hold of that. That can be life-changing. And so what's happening here in verse 13 through 17, again, Peter's affirming this pattern of Christ, except he adds something. He adds something to this pattern. What is it? When you look in verse 15, what does he add? And Alan illustrated this last week. It is that in the suffering, and the persecution, we must be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. So in this suffering and persecution, it is an opportunity. God's using that to fashion us, to uh, grow our faith, mature and perfect our faith. But also, that's, that's how it's coming to us, okay? That's what God's doing in us. It is the refining of our faith. But there is an outflow of that refining of faith, which is an opportunity to be evangelistic. In other words, people are going to look at you and go, why are you so excited? Chapter 1, how they rejoiced. They were so excited about this salvation. Why are you so excited about this, Jesus? You see what the world's doing to you, right? Well, why are you, where's this joy coming from? In that moment, verse 15, ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. It is an opportunity to share with the world, with people, yeah, in the midst of the suffering, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you who's got a hold of my life. And they have an opportunity through that suffering to be Brought to who? God. Now we're really stepping into this pattern of Christ. Now we're really becoming like Christ because we're not thinking about uh, life is not fair. 
How many of us really have said this statement? That's just not fair. How many students I got? How many singles in this church? How many times have you experienced life and you've made that statement? Maybe you didn't verbalize it, but in your mind, in your heart saying, that's just not fair, the way I'm being treated. Well, let's just clear the air. Life has never been fair, nor will it ever be. Praise God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they deserved death, but they received atonement. They received a covering. They deserved death in that moment, but judgment delayed. God took some animals and covered their sin. Praise God, this world isn't fair. Praise God, we're not getting what we deserve. Amen? Let's just clear that air. Some of us having a pity party. Some of us don't like what's coming our way. Amen. You're right. Life's not fair. Now, if you say amen to that, do you know what amen means? Amen, it means, so let it be. You're in agreement with the statement. So when we say a prayer, and maybe pastor gets all excited, and he says, amen, or as Alan said, when, uh, and all God's people said, amen. Careful what you say. Because in that amen, and many of us don't even know what amen means, yet we say it, but don't believe it. And so when we amen the scripture, when we amen the prayer, we are, getting, we are saying we're in agreement with, so let it be. So anyway, so what's happening here is that God has given the opportunity for us to testify, to be a witness, to give an account. We, say, we give this account with gentleness and reverence. We're not being obnoxious. We're not being rude. We're not being arrogant. And so in that, God is doing this work. And we just need to understand as verse 16 and 17, as Alan highlighted last week, uh, this suffering should be the result of doing good, not evil. Therefore, I want to make some statements that you need to be reminded of, okay? Therefore, Christians will suffer unjustly. Now, that may, that may be a shock to you. I don't know. So, Christians will suffer unjustly. When you get into uh, verse 18, you're going to see, though, how you're just getting right in line with this pattern of Christ. Secondly, we do good regardless of the response. Often we think about the response in advance, husbands and wives. You, you know how you're supposed to treat your spouse, right? And you're thinking, but when I do that, he's going to do this. Or the husband goes, man, I've been serving my wife. I've been being a good Christian husband. That's about time she returned that back to me. And, and we just kind of, how does she, how's she going to respond? Okay, no, no, no. We do good. We do good regardless of the response. In other words, be Christ-like regardless of the response. As uh, sharing with uh, at-risk teens and hurting families through the years of ministry, one of the things that I, I had to nail down early, and I would share this with the guys often, do the right thing even if it's the hardest. Do the right thing even if it's the hardest. That used to be a part of the DNA of the, uh, of, of the generation of World War II right? We would celebrate that generation. It was the generation that it didn't matter the cost, they do the right thing even if it's the hardest. That's something we need to learn today. We need to teach our families, our kids that today. So you move into verse 18. This pattern's being illustrated again. If you read verse, eight, verse 18, Peter's addressing that, that pattern again. You see some things coming out. And uh, in verse 18, for Christ also died 
for sins once for all. Okay? Now, died for the sins of the world? Yes. Not all will appropriate uh, forgiveness. Not all will appropriate this saving faith and, and, and accept Christ. But this once for all nails down the atonement, that it is settled, it is finished, all meaning no more need for repetitious sacrifices. In the Old Testament, what did they have to do? They had to continuously come back to the altar, continuously make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And what Christ has done is he's died for sins once for all, it's settled, it is finished. Then he goes on to say, the just for the unjust. The one who committed no sin, Peter said, as, as we look uh, in the previous chapters in verse 22, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The one who was without sin, who was just, died for the unjust. Now, as we look at this pattern of Christ that we've been called to, think about that for a moment. He died that we might be forgiven of sin. He imputes his righteousness toward the believer, right? It is not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that we've been given. But Peter, all throughout the text, is being saying, be holy as your father's holy. Be holy uh, like the one who's called you. He says to be obedient to the word. Uh, we're to be cleansed. We're to be clean. What is this saying over and over? We are to become holy as the one who's called us. We're becoming like Christ, right? The only way we can do that is through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sin. So in that, going back to that, that statement, life's just not fair, right? Okay. Are you tracking with me? So now as a born again believer, and Paul, Peter's been saying, okay, uh, you will suffer for doing what is right. You will suffer for being godly. All right, now we have just taken on this image of Christ. We're doing what is right in the eyes of God. We're doing good, and now we're suffering. Guess who suffered for us? The just for the unjust. Do you see what God is doing in this sinful world? He's fashioning a people who have been forgiven of all their sins, who don't deserve this suffering and persecution, yet they are willingly and gladly honoring Christ through this time of persecution, knowing that Christ is fashioning their faith, refining their faith, so that someone else might have an opportunity to hear the good news. To see this example of Christ. The just for the unjust. Now, we don't die for the sins of the world, uh, we, but God may call us in our suffering to lay down our lives. And it says, again, that statement in verse 18, so that he might bring us to God. The goal for his coming, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish. We need to understand we are, the world is on the road to perishing. Uh, the wrath of God awaits the world. It's waiting. It is coming. Sacrifice satisfies the justice of God, and all who would trust in Christ and believe shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. That is through Christ, faith in Christ. His blood covers all of our sin. And so, with Christ having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, the one who was undeserving of death in the flesh, he, was, he lived life without sin. He was crucified by unbelievers. Now, deserving of death because of our sin and flesh 
when we trust in his death and resurrection, his sacrifice for our sins, we're made alive in the spirit. So you got some dead people walking around, seriously, who need to be made alive. But you got one who's alive, who's without sin. He dies that others may come alive. Now we in Christ, who are alive in Christ, the spirit of Christ is working in us, we may be called upon to die. That others may what? Come alive. You see what, what's going on here? The, the issue with the flesh and our bodies is that it's all going to die. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the body's going to die unless Christ returns. And I get amen on that. We're clear. Whether you're an unbeliever or believer, the body's going to die. The question is what's going to happen after death? Where do you spend eternity? Are you spending eternity with Christ or are you spending eternity under judgment and damnation? We will live eternally. But is it the life in Christ, eternal life in him, or is it under judgment? And so there's this work that is happening in God's people. So I, I want to draw your attention to this example. Uh, verses 19 through 20 have, has caused, there, there's, so many, there's so many different explanations for verse 19 through 20, for the Apostles' Creed and different things. Okay, I'm not going to get into all of that right now. Okay, I'm going to do what we've been doing. I'm going to let the text speak for itself in the context of God's Word. We have said that in the epistles, the letters to the churches, every New Testament writer would do something with the Old Testament. He would take an Old Testament example to explain his teaching in the letter. Okay, So that's what we're going to do in verses 19 through 20. Because in 19 through 20, he says, after following 18, who have been put to death in the flesh, speaking of Christ, but made alive in the spirits, in which, following, following that phrase, alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. What is happening here? What's going on? Well, what Peter's highlighting is the work of the spirit, the spirit of Christ. How do I know that? How do I know that's what he's saying? Because when you walk through 1 Peter, you see the work of the Spirit highlighted. You step out of 1 Peter, and you see the work of the Spirit as well in God's Word, the story. The Spirit doing what? Bearing witness of Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit bore witness of Christ, the Christ who was to come. In the New Testament, you have the Spirit bearing witness of the Christ who came and died, buried and resurrected. And now the apostles are saying the work of the Spirit is exalting Christ in the church that the world may come to salvation. And so when we look through this, we see 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, right away at the beginning, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of whom? The Spirit. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, the Spirit working and moving and drawing a people to obedience of Christ. And then in verse uh, 10 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, the prophets, what were they doing? What was the Spirit at work in the prophets doing? They were seeking to know what person or time, here it is again, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Through the prophets, the Holy Spirit is revealing the Christ to come. It's the Spirit's work in the prophet. In these things, verse 12, uh, which have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. So in other words, we got some preachers who come on the scene. They, they've read of the prophets, the apostles, 
uh, they experienced Christ and they walked with him and they witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection. Now you've got in the church and throughout the world, you've got these preachers bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. So in verse 12, he says, these things have been announced to you, through you all, to you all, uh, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, the working of the Spirit. Things into which angels long to look. You go back to verse 15 that Alan mentioned last week, and what do you have in verse 15? He, said, he talks about this hope. Uh, be ready, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In, uh, in the language, what he's saying is this hope that is among you. It's plural. It is what's going on in chapter 1. He says this living hope within you that we have. Why is it living? Because it's Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is a work in us, in the body. We need to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us, that's among us, that's working and moving. All right? And it's the Spirit of Christ that is doing that. So when you get to Galatians 2.20, Apostle Paul, he speaks of this Spirit's working. Now, let's just... I need to highlight this for a moment because when we look at physically where Christ is... We need to know, okay, so again, who is it that's working in the body of Christ? Galatians 2.20, I have been, this is Paul speaking, the church of Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Wait a minute, Paul, you haven't been executed. You're still alive physically, right? And so he, he says, I have been crucified. He's talking about that old sinful nature, the sinful man. He said, I have been crucified. He's identifying with Christ's crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Wait a minute. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So who is it that's work in you and in the church? The Holy Spirit. But Christ lives in me. It is his agenda. It is this uh, verse 15, the sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart. It's him at work, his spirit at work. In the life uh, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. It, it, what Peter's highlighting is that it's always been the spirit of Christ testifying of him who would come, who came, and who is again in the church doing the work and is one day coming back, okay? So it is this spirit that went in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. There's two tenses there. There's this past tense. He, he went and he preached uh, this spirit uh, to those who are now in prison. Let me clarify this with a, with a statement. If I were to make this statement, Mrs. Webb, my wife, uh, Mrs. Webb uh, was born on November 11th, 1965, okay? I called her by Mrs. Webb. That's the title. Yet she did not become Mrs. Webb until December 14th, 1991. Yet you knew exactly who I was talking about. You knew exactly the tense. You knew exactly what was going on there. And so what Peter's saying in verse 19 is that the Spirit of Christ in the days of Noah went and preached through Noah to those who were disobedient. And he, the, the Spirit of the Lord was striving with mankind, calling them to repentance. But we know the Scripture says in the story of Noah, they rejected the message. I think it took Noah 100 years to build the ark. And all that while, old preacher Noah is testifying testifying and testifying. And so the spirit was at work and those who were rebel in rebellion, those who would not come to 
uh, repentance, guess what? They're now in prison. That's what Peter's saying. They're now, they're, they're now in prison, okay? And so verse 20, he gives this, uh, this example of what happened to those Noah and his family, his sons and their wives. They were safely carried through the ark through the water of what? What does the water represent? Judgment. They were safely carried through the waters of judgment, safely through by being concealed, housed in this ark. Now, when we look at the next verse, okay, you need to catch this next verse. There's a key word in verse 21. It's corresponding. This is what lets us understand what, what Peter's saying in verse 19 and 20 in regards to the church. Corresponding to that, what? Making it through the waters of judgment, safely through, corresponding to that in relationship to, in like fashion to that, baptism now saves you. The baptism, the word there they're talking about is immerse. It is to go down into the water. That's very important that you catch this because this baptism, he says, now saves you. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So the emphasis is not on the water. The emphasis is not on physical dirt and your physical body. It is this spiritual appeal. Look at it. It says, but an appeal to God, that's an inward spiritual response, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what's going on there? The Spirit's at work in the heart of, and mind of man men and women. They hear the good news and the person responds through faith to salvation and says, Jesus, I am acknowledging you that you are the son of God who died for my sins, the sins of the world. You were buried and rose again. I want to put my faith and trust in you and what you did on the cross. You're making an appeal to God for a clean conscience, a removal of sin. It is a very intentional act through faith. And so what is happening here, corresponding to Noah and the ark, is that through Christ, we are brought safely through the waters of judgment. And the, the baptism is this picture of the old sinful nature being buried. We're identifying with the death of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross. The old sinful man nailed to that cross 2,000 years ago. We're identifying with that, and we are being buried. That's that picture Spiritually, what happened? And we are raised to walk in what? Newness of life. It is a spiritual act done by whom? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's at work. Jesus seated on his throne. Praise God. Praise God that the Spirit is at work, exalting Christ. Amen. That's good stuff. And so as we move through this text some more, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus wins. So you know all this suffering? You know this persecution? You know, Peter said in the beginning of this letter, he says this, God's going to use this persecution to refine and mature your faith, to transform you into the image of Christ. You're going to be more like Christ, and he's going to perfect that faith. It's going to be a good thing. And oh, by the way, the salvation, he's got it. He's protecting that. It's awaiting you. He's going to transform you. You're going to have a glorified body, resurrected body. In the meantime, spiritually, the Spirit's going to be working. He's going to be transforming, taking the Word of God and conforming you into obedience to the Word of God. And people, through your suffering, through your persecution, submitting to authority, yet not their belief and behavior, 
God's going to do a work, and people are going to have an opportunity to come to Christ through your testimony. Guess what? That last verse, as you're going, here's how it's incredible encouragement, at least to me it is, is that when people are responding to me in a way that is really tough, or maybe I, maybe I do end up losing my life someday. I look at that verse right there. Jesus is seated on his throne. He's interceding on my behalf, and he's got me. And those who are persecuting the Christians, the church, he's coming back, and he's settling the score. He's going to take care of business. And so Paul, the apostles, they'd say, oh, it's just a little while. This current suffering you saying no to the world, you saying no to your flesh, you saying no to sin, and you saying yes to Jesus, yes to obeying God's word, yes to living it out, and oh yeah, you may be persecuted. The apostles would say, oh, it's just a little while. In comparison to the glory that's to come, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. What my Jesus has waiting for us. And so we can say yes to Christ. And we can say no to sin and disobedience. And we can say no to betraying Christ so that others might say yes to Jesus. I told my kids this one day. I said, your mom and I have committed to saying no that you might say yes. We've committed to saying no to the world that you might say yes to Jesus. Oh, that we, God would just be able to raise up a people like that. We don't have it nailed down. We have to keep coming back to it, and that's why we're thankful for grace. I don't know where you are today in this faith walk. I really don't. I'm so thankful that Jesus, um, Jesus, Jason, you're not Jesus. I just want to tell you that. <laughs> I'm so thankful that Jason was listening today as we were worshiping. He deviated from the plan, and we were down here praying. And I, after 30 years of ministry, and I, I'm, I got a long way to go. I got a lot to learn, but one thing I have realized I know when there's a spirit of rebellion in the house. I know when people walk in and there are people who have said, no, I will not submit to Christ. It's like a lot of baggage. It's like people carrying a heavy weight. And it was brought into this room today. I don't know who's carrying it. I don't know why you're hanging on to it. But there was an attitude of rebellion in this place today as we started this worship service. And... When there's rebellion, God doesn't honor the worship. He doesn't. His spirit is grieved by it. And there's, there's some times, and I'm guilty of it too, when I'm more concerned about me than I am Jesus. And so I just pray that God will crucify any spirit of rebellion that's in his people today. Let's stand and let's pray. God is doing a work in his people. He... You might be asking the question of God, well, God, what do you want from me? And I think, I think his response, according to the word, is his, I want all of you. I died for you. I purchased you with my death and my blood. I purchased you. I redeemed you. I want all of you. And we need to count the cost, church. Leadership costs. If you're going to lead your family, your marriages, men, it's going to cost you. If you don't lead, your family will pay for it. It's time for we count the cost, church. We understand what's going on here. There are people that need to be brought to Christ. 
And the longer we rebel, the fewer opportunities people have to come to Christ. Amen? It's a hard walk. It is a hard walk. Men, you've done incredible in this church. I want to commend you as they start playing. Men, I am so thankful for you. I, I can look across this room and I can see many men in this room that said, Lord, I so want to live for you. And I know it's a struggle. We go back and forth, don't we, guys? And we don't we almost get it. <laughs> I'm thankful for the wives in this church who have stood next to their husband and says, Baby, I, I believe in Christ. Let's keep trying. Let's keep going. We'll make it through. We'll make it through. Let's go. And so it's time for us to stand united together, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, receiving that grace and getting the big picture here. It's about Christ. And it's about people coming to Christ. And he's big enough. Look at that last verse in that chapter. He's big enough to carry it. Amen? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for our time together. And thank you for the love that you have for us. What an amazing God we serve. Lord, you have not been caught by surprise by our sin. Lord, you knew exactly how we would respond to you today or fail to respond. And you're not surprised by any heart in this room. You're not surprised by any motive. Uh, Lord, you, you know exactly what's going on with us. And yet, you, even in spite of our sin, you keep loving us. You keep pursuing us. Uh, your love is there waiting for us to engage with us. You're just that kind of God. David cried out in thankfulness for your love being everlasting. And he said when it came to, to uh, discipline, he preferred to be disciplined by his loving father than by the world, by mankind, because he knew the power of grace. Lord, today we're just a people who are, who are apt to fail, we're apt to faint, fall short, miss the mark daily. And we just want to acknowledge we need grace today. We need you, Lord. We want to be all in. We want to be obedient. We want to surrender. We want to come to you. But Lord, sometimes it's just, it's just hard. But like Noah, like Noah and his family, they were a minority, yet they persevered. And Noah knew that judgment was coming, yet he persevered. He continued to share the message. And Noah continued on. And he trusted that God would see him through. Lord, that example of Noah and 1 Peter uh, is so true for the church today. When we live for righteousness and do good for the name of Christ, we will be a minority. We know that judgment is coming and people need Jesus. Help us to pers persevere. And I trust now that, Lord, if there's someone struggling with sin in their lives, Lord, that they would take care of it. Right where they're standing. They would just they don't need me. They don't need anybody else. They can just cry out to a holy God and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me and cleanse me. Wash me anew today. There's some that may have struggled in relationships. Uh, if they need prayer, may they turn to those around them or come forward for prayer. Lord, we want to be about healing and reconciliation. But Lord, I don't want to forget if there's someone here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. Oh Lord, may today be the day of salvation. If they want to know how to be saved, how to put their faith and trust in Christ, may they come, may they respond. But Lord, we just trust you now, we worship you, and we want to honor you with our lives. We want to be all in. In Jesus' name I pray.